0: Welcome to Sin City. Get ready for in depth chat on new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you, cinephiles. Only on
1: cmru.ca and feel loud images. And now, to your host, Nick Manenses.
0: Welcome back to Sin City. I am your host, Nick Meneses And joining us today is one of our oldest, longest running guests, Matthew Zachariah. Hello there, Matt. How are you today?
1: Thank you for having me on the show, Nick. I am doing good.
0: Awesome. It's great to hear. And you came in just in time because today we are going to be discussing a very, very important film to me, and to those who, don't, who know me very well, this is my favorite scary film of all time. You guessed it, 1978's Halloween, written and directed by John Carpenter. Like, first off, I just cannot keep, I cannot start this episode without saying how important Halloween is for me. I, I watched this film first when I was a teenager, And this is probably the film that hooked me into the world of horror films. I grew up with all these slasher films from the 70s and the 80s, and still I consider Halloween to be one of, if not the best, number one to me, the greatest horror film of all time. So we're going to be talking about three different aspects of the film to keep this episode structured. We'll start with number one, the story, characters and themes followed by what makes it scary and three its impact on the film industry so I thought we should begin with literally the very beginning and that would be that opening theme like that opening theme you know with the you know with the pumpkin as the credits roll that is just so chilling and epic all at once
1: um with it it's it's um written in uh, five fourths time, so it gives a uh, also a sense of urgency the um, with it as well how they it's quicker than a standard beat. You're right, and even more
0: impressive is that John Carpenter himself, who never touched an instrument and has no musical experience, composed the score. He may not be a musician, at least during that time, but he has a very good ear for music, and that theme which he composed, it's one of the most iconic pieces of horror music and cinema in general. I see it up there with other themes like uh, the theme from Jaws by John Williams and, of course, the music from Friday the 13th, you know, the ch 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 or kiki ma 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 In fact, the music I hear was inspired by the themes of Dario Argento's Suspiria and The Exorcist by William Friedkin. Oh, and as a bonus to swell something that I noticed on multiple rewatches. Once the camera zooms in and focuses on the eye and nose of the jack-o'-lantern, you can see it looks as if it's Michael's face and he's holding a knife. Really? I don't know if that was intentional or not, but that was really genius. How do you think
1: it was intentional? But a fun fact about the pumpkins in the movie, it was filmed actually in spring between March and April. So all the fall effects that they've added like the pumpkins and all that the pumpkins they had to um like search for and actually had to um find them and uh, you see throughout the film that they're scarce use of pumpkins like it's supposed to be halloween but you don't see one on every doorstep and the f- fun fact about it is the first pumpkin we see in the movie Gets squished uh, when the kid gets uh, when Tommy gets pushed over by the bullies, so this rare commodity at the time uh, they just squished in one of the first scenes of it, and all the leaves, the fallen leaves are just green leaves painted brown, and they had to they released them with a fan to show it them falling, but then. Um, they had to go up and sweep them all back up afterwards to keep using for the rest of the film
0: oh really I did not know that wow and At the same time, to your point about the jack-o'-lanterns, yeah, you're right. Like, they're not even positioned outside. In fact, I noticed upon rewatch last night that the jack-o'-lanterns are placed in locations where you would not expect to put a jack-o'-lantern in the kitchen in Lori's house and in a bedroom table where Linda and Bob are busy being busy. And on top of that, back to the music, I guess... I just, the music is one of the most important components of the film. I, I'm guessing that even if you didn't watch a horror film, you'd know what that theme song is. It is that iconic. It has like a sense of foreboding and lets the audience know that something wicked this way comes. It's genius, really. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And going back for the to the pumpkins for a second um historically the pumpkins are set out on the porches to ward off evil spirits and i feel like it's very telling that in this movie specifically that there's a lack of that that for halloween when he comes home that there there's no they don't have any they don't have this historical symbol of protection for the time of the season and it is it is an evil spirit coming into your house so I feel like that the lack lack of jack-o'-lanterns adds an interesting aspect to the film
0: Mm, very good attention to detail Matt yeah I Wow, I didn't notice that. So the jack o' lanterns are almost like um, gargoyles, right? In the sense that they are meant to ward off evil spirits. Yeah.
1: Wow. Because Halloween, the holiday, is when all the. Basically, all the spirits are released and um, the jack o' lanterns are there to ward them off. So um, I think making the film Halloween rather than. Um just because uh, it was originally going to be ca- uh, called the babysitter sitter killer, I think. I think it was. And yeah, and it was supposed to take place over several days, but making it at Halloween adds a whole different element to the film that I would say um, isn't there just for the sake of marketing, even though it is really good. Um, but it's also there it also has a spiritual significance to the film.
0: Mm-hmm. yes that's right it also throws in the a supernatural feel to it and leaves it more open to the imagination. And speaking of open to imagination, that iconic theme would then be followed by what is probably my absolute favorite opening scene in any horror film. You know, the one where we witness uh, Michael as he kills his sister, which was all done with one take. The cinematography is impressive as well.
1: Um, Actually, it was broken up. It looks like it's done in one take, but there are subtle cuts in it. It's sort of like how they filmed 1917, how there's specific points they cut out. Like, I know when he puts on the mask, that's a cut. And I think when um, he goes down the stairs, that's another one. But the editing and the camera work make it such a seamless trans um, transition that it's, um, looks like it's one shot, so.
0: Ah, And also the stunt performer for six-year-old Michael Myers Ah. was actually done by Deborah Hill, who was the producer of Halloween. I
1: would give her more credit than that. She was responsible for much more of Halloween than she gets credit for. She wrote all the dialogue between the girls in the movie. She, um, a lot of the um, services provided for the film were through connections through Deborah Hill. And she was also dating John Carpenter at the time. And she, it's always known as John Carpenter's Halloween but she contributed it a lot more to the film than she gets credit for, so. Wow.
0: So respect to her, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, she and John Carpenter would go on to direct the next two sequels as well. Halloween 2 and Season of the Witch 2. Oh, Mm -hmm. and may she rest in peace as well.
1: Yeah.
0: And that, at the same time, what I always kept saying to quote the words of the great Stephen King himself the strength of a story relies on the strength of its antagonist and michael myers is probably in my opinion one of the greatest villains of all time not just in horror but in all of fiction and i think we as fans can agree because i'd like to devote this time as well to discuss further about what i've always wanted to discuss on this show which is a character study almost like a psychological profile on the shape first off notice uh, that In the entirety of the movie, like, we know who is the one behind the mask, but in the movie, notice how we only hear Michael's name three times, but for the rest of the film, he's written the script as The Shape, It's almost like giving off a supernatural implication, you know, that Michael was once a man, a human being, but is now something else entirely, something cold, soulless, and inhuman. We see him first as a six-year-old child and jump back 15 years later, and he is this unspeakable force of evil donning this inhuman mask
1: Oh, he, he's not just the shape. He's also the boogeyman, which is what he's also referred to. He is the man under the bed. He is this monstrous figure that lurks. He is what, when referring, he is my envision of the boogeyman. This cold, emotionalist face that haunts you and throughout the movie how they portray Michael Myers is subtly terrifying in every scene that he is in it's it's not like he's a threat immediate threat to you like when Laurie looks sees him before uh, the climax of the film it's him obscured in the distance staring and this with this inhuman mask on his face it's frightening and you always see the movies another testament is how the movie's shot because it is shot a lot of the scenes are shot as though it was a first person perspective walk watching the action And that makes you question, who are we seeing this point of view from? And then just the subtle view of the boiler suit entering, it's, and the implication that it is Michael all along, it's, it's terrifying.
0: Yes, exactly, yeah. The point of view shots are crucial to the film. In fact, they draw reference and inspiration from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Psycho, I hear, was a huge influence for John Carpenter to direct Halloween. And to fit in more with the inhumanity of Michael Myers, Like one of the synonyms of evil is inhuman. And the mask... It is inhuman. It gives gives up some uncanny valley feel to it. In fact, the mask would be considered Michael's face. You know, those cold emotionlessness. It really reflects the character, the essence of Michael Myers. as really fitting for this unspeakable and relentless force of evil.
1: Yeah. And they got it right the first time. It's... If you always... Like, thinking that... The, I always think of uh, Friday the 13th and the development of Jason because it took him till his third movie to get his iconic look. In the first one, he was just a kid. In the second one, he wore a plaid shirt, overalls, and a sack on his head. But it's the third movie where they defined it. And how... Um, John Carpenter got it so right the first time is amazing. It's like, because you can, you always think of something will be terrifying. And then when it translates to film, it's, it's not, it could not, it just could not work. And a lot of slashers at the time tried to do, um, that tried to, sort of copy Halloween the all these teen slashers and Friday the 13th and all that they tried to make an iconic look like Michael Myers but how many of those um, are remembered today? yeah I know I think um, the gas mask from My Bloody Valentine is one of the more noticeable ones um, but the way they did it is they got a mask of uh, william shatner a captain kirk mask and they spray painted it white and then dirtied it up a bit and that is the shape and um and it has persisted to this day like the new halloween movies it is not um a different mask it's not someone else's mask it is well it is a different mask in the sense that it's not the same mask from the 70s but it is the same look as the original halloween
0: that's true yeah and which the later sequels try to replicate to horrible results especially Uh the fifth one but also more on the mask notice how in all of Michael's scenes, at least when he is back as the shape, even when it's from a distance or a close-up, notice how you cannot see his eyes. It's mostly obscured by darkness, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, because eyes usually represent a form of empathy. They help us to sympathize or feel something with that character, but Michael's mask obscures his eyes, which prevents us from relating or sympathizing with this monster. It's a lack of empathy which is befitting of a psychopath like Myers is.
1: It's, Michael Myers is interesting as a character because unlike real-life psychopaths, there's no pretending. A lot of times A psychopath will try and act like they fit in. They do their best imitation of what they think people should act like. But it's with Michael Myers, it's there's none of that. It's not like he's um, trying to um, pretend like he's everyone else and you got to think that at what point did he go wrong like after after the beginning of the film when he kills his sister judith it's um why do, the question is why he did that cuz that is the initial incident after that he spent the rest of his life in a mental asylum and how how did that affect him as a person? Does that lead to the inhumanity of it, or was it was Michael Myers always like this? Was he always this cold, emotionless monster, or did was he shaped by the asylum? It's like I don't want to see a origin of it what like what we got in rob zombies halloween because that but it's like why what happened that what happened to him that made him like this
0: well there you've already got your answer in the film which is he's purely and simply evil notice how What really makes Michael Myers scary for me, and I think for all of us, I can say, isn't the mask or the way he kills people, it's the lack of motive. He doesn't seem to have a reason or motive for killing people. Like, we know Jason, how he kills for his mother, Freddie kills for fun, but Michael, he, he doesn't even look like he is killing for pleasure. He doesn't seem like he's enjoying his own actions. It's almost like he's not angry, not sad, not even satisfied. He is unaware what he's doing is right or wrong or worse. Maybe he does know what's right and what's wrong. But he just doesn't care. He's just been like that, I guess, since he was a child. Also, after he kills his sister, notice that after his parents, you know, remove his mask, his face, blank, almost confused as if he has no idea what he just did. Or maybe he is completely indifferent to the murder he just committed.
1: But there's also, I know, um, in counterpoint to that, when he kills Bobby later on in the film... He looks at him with a look of curiosity. I know in the audio commentary, they described it as him looking at a butterfly. That it's... That there is something behind the mask. It's not just this blank thing, but it is what is behind the mask that's terrifying.
0: Exactly, yeah. And there's also implication that Michael did it on Halloween specifically because he got off on killing his sister. It gave him a feeling of power, satisfaction, some kind of feeling. So he came back on Halloween specifically to relive that moment. He couldn't find it when he killed Annie, I'm guessing. But he found that same feeling of power and satisfaction when he killed Bob. That is a long-standing theory that Michael kills simply to relive that night when he was a child, almost like he has some form of twisted nostalgia.
1: Yeah, that is true with a lot of real life serial killers, how they kill for pleasure. Like, they can only get off with these violent acts. But I feel Michael, there's, it's, that's not the case for Michael. There. There is something twisted about him. It's not that he's, that he's here merely just for the, uh, just here for, uh, the pleasure or power he might get from it. I feel like he represents evil. He is the boogeyman. And I know um, uh, we were talking about this earlier. I brought up the idea of a tulpa, how it's this thought-born entity that the, it g- gets more powerful the more you think about it. And you see that more with sort of freddy how he lives through the nightmare and the urban legend about himself. But I feel like with Michael, he is the representation of this evil spirit that comes at night. Exactly, you're right.
0: The literal boogeyman who draws his power from fear. Yeah, also to follow up on Bob's death when he gets pinned to the wall, what does Michael do next? He puts on a ghost sheet and Glasses to taunt Bob's girlfriend, Linda. It really... And he just stands there staring at her and doesn't kill her until she has her back turned and gets a good look at him. That, in fact, according to a documentary of Halloween, the narrator said that to Michael, frightening his victims is much more important, much more entertaining rather than just killing them which also hints at two things one is his boogeyman status and the other the fact that he scares his victims right before killing them it really implies very strong sadistic behavior from him
1: it's and we also see that this idea of fear throughout the movie and also later on when he sets up the house for um, Lori, how it's this house of horrors with all her friends murdered and butchered throughout it, and she just runs into one dead body after another to keep, to, to terrify her. But, and then the stalking does the same job, but in a different way. It's not the what will, it's not what can happen to you, like she saw with her dead friends. It's what might happen to you, which is even more terrifying.
0: Exactly. It's more about the possibility, or rather the plausibility. Yeah, and also after she stumbles upon all her dead friends, and I really love that shot when she is, Standing there frightened and Michael suddenly emerges from the shadows That was such a chilling frightening image and on top of that to make it more frightening John Carpenter even went on to say that Michael was standing there the whole entire time even before Lori came into the house just... Yes, yeah.
1: and how they did that effect is they just had a light and then basically a dimmer and they just slowly reveal him in the closet. And that's really interesting how they they just, with this simple trick, they create so much terror. Exactly, very true. Right, and on top of that, another thing that
0: makes Michael terrifying to us all is the level of ambiguity. Like you mentioned Michael, is a boogeyman, but it's a literal or figurative like the movie doesn't make it clear and that's good that's intentional of course is Michael really the boogeyman like some supernatural force that can shrug off all types of injuries that could kill a human being or is he just a human being a very strong but still very human serial killer that typical psycho that you hear about in the news. It's never quite clear, and that just adds even more depth to the character. But at the same time, also notice how to keep on with the uncanny valley feeling of Michael, since when you look at the mass from a distance, you'll notice, huh, it's just a human being. But the closer you get, it looks human, but... Not quite there again, it adds to Michael's evil, his inhumanity. Because the mask it looks like an uncanny valley, almost like a pale, horrific parody of what yeah. humanity is meant to represent.
1: Yeah. And the key is also death. We see what well, we hear early on that they were listening to. Uh, Don't fear the reaper by Blue Oyster Cult in the car, and that is indicative. Well, that, that is indicative. Well, sorry, that's evocative of the image of the grim reaper. This hooded figure with carrying a giant scythe, and they. It's basically. I would say Michael Myers and Halloween ha, have sort of become a modern myth. No longer are we afraid of the hooded scythe-wielding reaper, because that, that dated back all the way to medieval times. It is now the Michael Myers, the hooded boiler suit, brandishing a kitchen knife, which has sort of become a more um, a more Modern version of death I would say. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, I, I I noticed that. Yeah, on Rewatch. Wow, it's the fear the Reaper was playing during that particular scene. It's impressive as well. Also something that I feel gets overlooked a bit especially towards the film's climax, is the part where we, for a brief moment, see Michael's face. That is even terrifying, too, because we've spent this whole film being stalked by what we thought was this inhuman force. But when Laurie pulls off his mask, we see it's just, just a man, a regular looking young man. He still has a scar on his eye, but still, it's a relatively normal looking human being. He looks just like everyone else. It really like, juxtaposes with all the horrible things he's done. It shows that, yeah, that a man's good or evil should be seen in his actions, not his face, because one would assume when you see that kind of person, you wouldn't suspect a thing that they are this this monster, this malevolent force.
1: It's I genius. think that part specifically. I would say that they probably could have cast cast that role better, because true, it is just a man, but it it is the it is an angry. It's an angry disgusting face it's and I feel like if it was something more akin to Norman Bates this just average look more, more so this average looking guy rather than this the actor that they did go with that is sort of terrifying if you do it it could it, it might have a different effect on you but the way they do it, it is still this. They, they they broke it down to just a angry man where they could have done it. They could have done more with it, I, I would say.
0: Oh, really? uh, well, personally, I think they knocked it out of the park with that one because, you know, how also the same as with the opening, it parallels what happened in the opening when Michael gets unmasked plus again towards the climax it really sells the face of an angel mind of a demon complex because even without it that really impressed me even that small scene because it shows that yeah Michael is even scary even without the mask because all the monsters don't always have to wear a mask they can be anyone. Someone that you just pass by and never notice. Someone that sits next to you at work and you don't even pay attention. It's a really chilling and genius move on Carpenter's part, I, in my personal opinion. And at the same time, also, one scene, probably my favorite scene in the entire film, is one which doesn't involve Michael at all but rather about him. And I always love to say this bit whenever we're discussing anything Halloween-related. So here it comes. Uh, I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left, no reason, no conscience, not even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. That scene was 30 seconds and in those 30 seconds that's everything we need to know about the shape because I just love it because in most films these days, they always tend to explain everything, dump exposition on us. But this,
1: it's short, sweet, simple,
0: and to the point.
1: I would also think in modern films, they would fill that with flashbacks. Where, for one, this movie didn't have the budget to do flashbacks that they were really. Uh, we'll probably get to that later, but they were really, they, they it, it was really low budget for what, for the product that they made. And also they only had Donald Pleasant, Sam Loomis, who said those lines four or five days and they couldn't have um, done more with him, I would say. They they, they, they used him just enough where he's memorable but not like we're cutting to him every five minutes and seeing oh this is what um, they're up to. I know. I know some movies have uh, are problematic like that, but um, they they really use yeah. To
0: At the same time, it, it was a smart move not to use flashbacks because Doctor Loomis's or in this case Donald Pleasant's his facial expressions. They really he looks almost terrified, dreadful. It really highlights just how scary Michael Myers is. In fact, this scene, I think, is the most important part of the film. It really captures the character. It tells us everything we need to know about Michael Myers in less than a minute. Dr. Loomis is almost like the voice of Michael Myers without the shape having to speak. It's one stroke of genius, indeed, yeah. and. On top of that, I'd like to talk a bit more about one of the most important aspects of the film, which fits in with story, characters, and themes, which is, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode in what's her first film, actually. She was 19 when she shot this. I know some people might say that she is very bland and a vanilla protagonist because she's just a girl scout very pure and good but personally i think that's the point of the film we need a character that that's human one that contrasts our main antagonist
1: a lot of people got the sex bad message from the film how oh, all these teens who are having sex are getting murdered and got the impression that that was the point of it how it's a celebration of abstinence but that wasn't the intention of the film it was rather than lori being all boy crazy and preoccupied with this she is observant she is she pays attention to her surroundings and that's why she sees the shape and eventually survives not because She's not boy crazy. It's because she isn't. She pays attention to her surroundings, and I know a lot of um what she does in the film. A lot, a lot of things she d- does in the film, people don't understand. But as Lori the character, makes sense for the film. Like I know. After she, throughout the film, after she gets the upper hand on Michael Myers, at first after she stabs him with the knitting needle, and then after stabbing him with his own knife, she drops the knife and everyone, well, not everyone, a lot of people are, um, they mentioned this on the audio commentary, but a lot of people think, well, why would you drop the knife? She thinks it's over. She thinks it's done and she doesn't want anything to do with it but it's not just a man it is the the boogeyman and he keeps on getting up and keeps on attacking her and she doesn't she, she doesn't want to be any part of this it's not like she's taking joy in fighting this monster she wants to get it over with and that's why she doesn't want to be a part of it any longer by dropping the knife. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Wow. I can't believe many people thought that, because
0: that she's, when she threw the knife, they I've seen some reactions in YouTube when Lori threw the knife away, instead of stabbing Michael with it, they said that she's a pretty dumb character, but no, to your point. Because she shows that Lori, she is she's a fighter, yes, but not a murderer. She will, she's not a violent person, but she will fight back if she needs to, which really shows the humanity in her, contrasting with Michael as well. And speaking of Michael and the humanity complex, I know there are some people out there who say that, oh, but Michael Myers is boring. He's just this one-note psychopath who kills people and doesn't have a personality. But that's the point of the movie. Because John Carpenter said that Michael Myers is not a character. He's more of a force of nature, part human, part supernatural If we know too much about Michael, it humanizes him. And John Carpenter specifically said Michael is someone we're not supposed to root for or sympathize with in any way.
1: Yeah. And it's not like we haven't seen what happens when you do that. Like, because going back to Rob Zombie's Halloween, he does go back and develop Michael's backstory. And it just lessens the impact of him. it's the whole thing with um, sort of seeing how the hot dog is made. You're not gonna want to have a hot dog after that. The just seeing the process of it. Sometimes it's interesting to see the um, development of how someone gets to this state, but you there's some characters you don't do that with. And I know from personal experience, Alien. Like, the more they expand Alien with the movies they do, the more they develop the origins of it with Prometheus and Alien Covenant and all this, the less impact it has, that the Xenomorph has. It's the mystery, the unknown, that makes things terrifying, not um, not something just looking scary. You need to have something be scary. Matt, you are speaking my language.
0: <laughs> You're right. You're right. Thank you. Finally, someone who actually gets it. Cause that's right. The fear of the unknown. That's what Halloween was all about. Really an alien too, but let's stick to Halloween. It's, Less is more. Like, part of what made Michael scary also in the first place was the mystery surrounding the character. You know, he's faceless. He just commits motiveless murder. We don't know anything about him, and that makes him all the more dangerous. Like, if you take off his mask, you make him speak, reveal his backstory, it breaks the spell. It shatters the illusion. Thank you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And... At the same time, notice as well how Halloween, despite being one of the earliest horror films or in this case slasher films, it for the most part averts the jump scare tactics. In fact, to me the real horror in Halloween is more like the fear of the unknown, well for the characters anyway. We, the audience, we know something is going wrong, but the characters don't. That's where the fear sits in. You know that the danger is there, but you have a limited window of opportunity to react to the danger.
1: It's the theatrical uh, term of dramatic irony. It's like the classic Greek plays like Oedipus where we know what's going to happen. It is how we know something that the characters in the story don't know. And that adds drama to the, that adds drama and tension because we know Michael's out there from the scenes with Donald Pleasant, but the characters we know and the characters know Michael's there but they just don't know how dangerous he is and they're not even sure he really exists it's only Lori who sees him but and then when she tries to point it out to her friends he's gone it's it's there's an element to it where no how like you were saying how we know Michael and how dangerous he is, but how oblivious everyone else in the movie is to the imminent danger. Go on with the
0: dramatic irony of the situation and how the characters are oblivious to what's going on. Notice how all of the characters in the film, they die because they forgot to keep their doors locked, which in, the, in Haddonfield, the doors are unlocked. and. What does that tell us? It tells us that the characters are not just oblivious, but that they don't suspect a thing. They don't suspect anything horrible or monstrous could happen, which was befitting in the 1970s, because the 70s, for the most part, were a pretty innocent time where everyone didn't suspect a thing. They kept their doors unlocked. And to quote this passage from American Sniper, the book, that there are two types of people in this world. There are wolves, those who commit harm and evil to others, and that there are sheep who don't suspect and don't believe in such things, such as evil, or that there is violence in this world. Which, in this case, Michael is the wolf, and the residents of Hattonfield are the sheep.
1: Uh, Just going back to... Um, What you were saying about unlocked doors, a lot of that, that's what, I would say that's why Halloween works so well, even now these days, but especially back then. Because I would say the first really big home intruding murders were the Manson family at the end of the 60s. And that that fear of keeping your door unlocked was only amplified by the real-life serial killer Richard Chase, or the Vampire of Sacramento, who basically, um, I'm going to keep this brief, but he had a belief that if you left your door unlocked, it means he was welcome to come into your house. And he... And um he would go in and murder people just for having their house unlocked not because it, it, he was trying to um he was trying to murder specific people this is part of the randomness of how he acted and like a lot of serial killers they're, they don't they don't know their victims they don't unlike other murders where it's methodically planned and all that where they know who their victim is and they're planning to kill them they um it's random he would check doors and if they were unlocked he was welcome to come into your house kill you but if it was locked that means he wasn't welcome and you would just move on to the next house and i know Um, But that's, I feel like with that Halloween, it's really interesting how horror movies reflect the horrors of the real world in a way that is digestible for the audience. Because not everyone might learn about the Manson murders or learn about Richard Chase. But people will learn about Halloween, whether through the zeitgeist or not. This idea of pop culture pervades um, one's knowledge, how you might know of something, even though you haven't seen it, you are aware of it. And how movies like Halloween inform the viewer that even though that this is a fictional character the lesson of you should, you probably shouldn't keep your door unlocked or these sort of people might be out there. This is a fictional example of it, but be aware of this is what I feel Halloween is trying to present a, and the idea of it as a modern myth is this piece of media to teach this lesson throughout the ages. I feel like it does a good job of that. Yeah, I agree as well. Fact
0: can be found in fiction too. And in this case, yeah, keep your doors locked. And at the same time, yes, Michael Myers may not exist, but there are people like him out there. Not people who wear masks and kill people on Halloween, of course, no, but people who will hurt others and take advantage of any mistake they make to make sure they hurt that someone else. And much like Michael, there are other people out there who commit their acts of evil just for the sake of it. They have a des- they just kill, hurt others out of a desire to commit evil just for the sake of committing evil. Ted Bundy, anyone?
1: Well, I'm going to contrary that. Um, With a lot of serial killers, it's not really about evil for the sake of evil, Um, even though that's what the media tries to present. It's these, a lot of times it's these sadistic fantasies, how they sort of blend um, uh, sexual release with the idea of... Um, violent acts how they can only get off by committing murders and this is usually caused by a traumatic childhood where um, they were abused as children and that led them to this life there's and but it's also part-hand psychology where um, because not not all psychopaths or sociopaths become murderers. Because then we would have a we would have like a serial killer every month, basically. But it's it's in combination with that and the childhood of abuse, and usually it's they have a traumatic head injury when they were younger um, that leads them to this. They blur the lines of what normalcy is and they they become these monsters because they don't know how to act properly because of their how they were raised so like Ted Bundy wasn't killing because it was evil he was killing for sexual gratification and that's that's the only way he could achieve it is by killing these young women Huh. wow quite quite the analysis for sure but
0: regardless if he was committing it just for the sake of evil the action itself would still be deemed evil regardless of course
1: yeah but it's not out of pure evil there's a very personal element to a lot of serial killers' crimes so in a way let's when we're
0: discussing this you know when we're ar- with this argument on people who commit acts of evil, I guess Michael Myers fits in that category let's say yes. nobody else huh.
1: I'm trying to think, but as because there's a lot of supernatural Forces in it, I would say, um, just off the top of the, a Damien from the Omen, he would be evil. But unlike Michael, um, we know why he's evil. He is the Antichrist. Whereas Michael, we just don't know about him.
0: It's true, yeah, and that's right, yeah, and at the same time. To your previous point as well on Myers being a sexual deviant and how he's killing people for committing acts of sex, which, or at least that's what some people believe, it's, would you say it's mostly, I'd say it's more coincidental, actually, more motiveless and senseless, the murders, because sex or not, Michael will still kill you. Because notice how the murders that Michael commits in the film anyways, they they don't benefit him in any way. He has nothing to gain from the murders.
1: I think a good way to compare it to is um, to the first Friday the 13th. Because in that one, I guess spoilers for Friday the 13th. um, Mrs. Voorhees, I think, is it Pamela Voorhees? Yeah. She kills the camp counselors because of their having sex. But not just because she straight out hates sex as an action, not like she's a conservative christian who thinks abstinence is the only way it's because her son jason drowned while camp counselors were off having sex rather than watching the kids and this is a she is motivated by her hatred of the act because it resulted in this death of her son not because she thinks it's morally wrong it's because well she made it more... she thought it, it became morally wrong to her because it basically murdered her child. Yeah, well... yeah. Yeah. In the case of... in the vacuum of just the first Friday the 13th, that's the case. But then in the sequels, Jason lives and... Um, but she believed she uh, he was dead... And then his philosophy pervaded through that to Jason. And he carries on the same sentiment. That's right,
0: as mommy dearest. Yeah. And also, but yeah, because, but in the Halloween's case, the rules are, do not apply here, because Michael's murders are more coincidental, more random. In fact, to intertwine this. Remember when Laurie first saw Michael outside her school? The teacher was giving a lecture about fate. How fate is unavoidable because that is what links all the characters to Michael Myers. They're just victims of fate. Victims of circumstance. They happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And if we're going by the continuity, the new one from the Halloween 2018 and the new sequels, Michael targeted Lori just because she happened to be there. She was wrong place at the wrong time. She It wasn't because they were related. He went after her by dumb luck, by fate, their paths crossed by coincidence. So that means that basically Michael killed a bunch of teenagers and went after Lori simply because he could.
1: Yeah, I think the only connection seen in the first film between Michael and Laurie, which I think it might be the reason why she does get stalked throughout the film, was she dropped off the key to the Myers house at the beginning. Because um, I think her mom was the realtor and then they were just dropping the key off. And then you do see Michael in the house looking out at her. And this is probably because thinking of the timeline of it, how Michael um, got the car, stole it, got his boiler suit, well, killed, got his boiler suit, and then drove to Haddonfield. And then he probably got there at night. And then in the day, the first person he saw was Laurie. And there's no other reason for, to stalk Lori, except for, like you were saying, circumstance. That's right. Yeah, that's true.
0: All of it was random, let's say, just a spare of the moment, really. And to continue on with another thing I noticed about Halloween. Notice how the majority of the film, at least for the first half, takes place in daylight. That is one of the best examples of daylight horror I've ever seen, because it's usually hard to pull off daylight horror than it is to do it at night, because in daylight, no one suspects a thing. It's where you assume that it's gonna be okay, the characters are safe, nothing that comes bump in the night can hurt them there. But with Halloween, they are wrong, just so wrong. And on top of that, even though Halloween is a slasher film, also notice how there aren't many deaths. They're just the yes, ash there are five murders, but they don't happen until the last half, the third act of the film, which really shows that back then slasher films weren't always full of buckets of blood and gore. They were more about creeping suspense and tension, which is what Halloween is all about really. It's it's bread and butter.
1: You know, um they had to at a scene at sun sunset which has some of the most gorgeous shots in the film with them just driving around talking um that's laurie and annie um because they how the film was set up for one for time reasons the movie wasn't long enough but also to have that transition from day to night because before it was day and then all of a sudden night and they added this one scene in just so it's a more soft transition to it and I think that having these two because it is supposed to all be one day and they make the most of that one day I would think with the day and the night
0: and they succeeded at that too yeah and notice too much like its predecessor, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, although Halloween is advertised as a slasher film, there is very little blood to be found. There is, it's not about the gore, it's more about the suspense as we mentioned before. And that's a mistake some of the slasher films in later years would go. It, it can be good or it can be bad sometimes, but in Halloween's case, they really succeeded at that because it's just a film that really needs to be shown at or taught even at film class. Because that this is what made slasher films great to me in, in the beginning. Not the deaths, high body counts, or buckets of blood, but more about the tension and character study. Which is something I'm glad the new sequels and some slasher films today, such as Hush, have really captured...
1: Back to *Tuck the Chainsaw so Master* for a second. A lot of the violence in that film isn't shown. A lot of it's actually implied. Like you do see people get like smacked in the head with a sledgehammer, but even when like I, Leatherface threw them on the meat hooks, it you don't see the meat hook go into them. There's a lot less gore than it is than you think there is it's oh they do it they do it in a way where it's a lot of implied violence like you think that they're getting it but they don't actually show a lot on screen so there's not really that much blood in the film actually i would say something yeah more like the later friday the 13th with um the effects by tom zavini they did i would say use buckets of blood That's true. Right.
0: Exactly. Because both films, Texas Chainsaw and Halloween, they leave more to the imagination. In fact, one scene that reminds me of this is when Dr. Loomis and um, Sheriff Brackett go into the Myers house. They see, but we don't see, that Michael has killed and presumably eaten a dog. Dr. Loomis says he got hungry, which... We don't know if it's true Michael really did eat a dog or if he's just talking metaphorically. We don't see the dog either. But just Dr. Loomis' descriptions says it all. It's enough to just send a shiver down your spine.
1: Yeah. And um, he does. we do see him kill a dog. It's not like Michael Myers is any animal ever here. But how they did that, how the dog looked limp after he did it 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 was just his legs drooping like if you hold up a dog like that that's how it the legs happen but it has the effect of it going limp same with bobby's toes curling after he gets stabbed the idea of just falling limp is does it great for uh showing death without having to do expensive special effects exactly
0: very true Matt. and we keep talking more about the mask but how about the one behind the mask nick castle because yes nick castle he may be a stunt performer but he really did a great job playing michael myers is just the, his body movements, the way he walks, the way he moves is very uncanny, creepy, and unnerving. In fact, that's something I felt most of the stunt actors of Michael Myers failed to do. They're just... Walking, but just walking, not really doing much of anything. But with Nick Castle, like everything, the mannerisms, how he tilts his head, how he walks, it really shows us that this isn't a man, but something else. And that reminds me, notice how, or rather, something that I've always been questioning, it's been a riddle of the ages for all of us, is the fact that Michael never runs. He just walks he just takes his time even when his victims are escaping from him now why do you think that
1: well if we as we go back to the idea of him as death that i mentioned earlier it's the inevitability of it all like regardless how much you and how much you struggle michael will get you he will find you and he will kill you and it, it doesn't matter if you run high trying to fight back, he will find you. He is the boogeyman, he is death, and he is inevitable. Taking one from Marvel there. But, um, but we see that in the film. He gets back up every after each attempt to kill him by Lori, And then after he gets shot by Loomis and falls off the balcony, he's gone, disappears, for another day. You can run, you can hide, but Michael will still get you.
0: It was the boogeyman.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: As a matter of fact, it was. And that also, yeah, that's really good in- interpretation too. Another one, I think it has to do more with sadism, I think, because Michael he likes to take his time with his victims to quote one of his um, perks from Dead by Daylight, play with your food, because Michael has like some feeling of uh, dominance, of power over his victims. And to him, it's much more fun to drag out their suffering, to see that look of fear and panic in their eyes just before he's about to kill them all. It's, I think, in While your interpretation was quite complex and really interesting, but at the same time, I feel it has more to do with Michael's, you know, cruelty, his sadism.
1: If you go that way, that is putting something behind the mask. That means he is sadism of getting enjoyment from causing others pain. Where, yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel that... If it's kind of hard to put labels on him, because if you put if you start putting labels on him, it will detract. You you, if you start um, defining the character, you start defining boundaries. I see. Like
0: what it goes against what John Carpenter was going for, right? To make Michael less of a character and more of this force of nature.
1: Yeah, yeah. If if you start treating him under these same psycholog- psychological restrictions that we have, you start making, you start forming him as a man and not a monster. Good point, yeah. But I, I do agree that, like, it is, he it could be out of sadism why he, um um why he keeps why he plays with his food rather than just straight up straight out killing them and that there is um uh there is actual serial killers that sort of fall into that that, because there's um two there's really two main types there are product killers and process killers the product killers um, they want the body. They have necrophiliac intentions with the body, or they they have something about a the power they get from over a body is what gets them off. Whereas process killers, it's the act of violence. How this act of violence, this murderous passion-filled action is is why they kill not to get the body the body for them is a hindrance it's the process is why they do it not the um uh not the body like some other ones but um uh and then the sadism plays into that the longer they drag out this process the more Enjoyment they will get out of it, and in if it's not stabbing, like actually like stabbing them or make, having them bleed to death. Stalking them is part of the process for them. They could be um, this this idea of like voyeurism. How they are just watching you. Of course. And, ah. See
0: your point too. Wow, oh man, you sure have done your homework on all
1: this psychoanalysis. Well, I, I uh, true crime is like a hobby. I listen to a lot of podcasts about it. I know. I also read Mindhunters, Hunters, the one the Netflix series is based off of, and uh, John Douglas, the author of the book. Um, he was. The, he's the father of criminal uh psychology basically he well i wouldn't say the grandfather because there's evidence of we've seen throughout literature like right now i'm reading crime and punishment and dr ISD does a great job of showing the psychology of crime but specifically like serial killers and the motivations behind them he he really developed that for the fbi and a lot of their profiling techniques developed back then are still used to this day. Quite
0: impressive. Yes. And also, on a side note as well, two okay. more side, side things as well. Notice how when Michael is uh, stabbed to death by Lori with the coat hanger and the knife, when he gets back up, He doesn't even raise his arms, which really gives off that supernatural, like vampirish vibes to the character. And the other, I noticed this upon rewatch three times, but Lindsay and Tommy are watching The Thing from Another World, which coincidentally came out four years before John Carpenter would direct it. I just thought it was really nice to to drop in. Really cool Easter egg.
1: Um, uh, on top of that, the tape that they watched, it wasn't, it was a predecessor to the VHS, um, was from John Carpenter's personal collection because he was a big fan of the thing from another world and that's why he wanted to remake it. So, um, and we, we see that because we see the same intro, how it burns away with the thing and John Carpenter does the same effect when he remade it in... Couple years later. Wow, that's impressive too. And also,
0: when Annie is talking to her boyfriend Paul on the phone, that's actually the voice of John Carpenter through the phone. Just I found out yesterday. Just really nice touch, director cameo. Yeah. And we've discussed the story themes and characters, and what made it really scary. But I'd like to go for a few minutes on discussing the impact of Halloween because. Is something we really need to touch on because Halloween, yes, it's not the first slasher film ever made, but it really codified, it popularized all of the slasher tropes that we have come to know by now. And keep in mind, this was way way after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Psycho, Suspiria, and Black Christmas. Yeah.
1: Um, I would say Halloween... Um, in a way, gave birth to the slasher boom of the '80s, because it was a movie made for relatively cheap, for like three hundred thousand. And the a lot of reasons why they made it so cheap was they used a television crew, film crew rather than a traditional film crew, and that's why a lot of shots are. Um, it, it's a, there's a lot of not big sweeping shots it's um more down to earth i would say i know they did rent a crane for uh one shot when they were showing off the Myers house but uh, um the reason they made this movie that basically was a huge success at the box office and then um a year later well a year or two later, uh, Friday the 13th came out and that was basically, oh, yeah, we just, we saw Halloween and we were like, I think Scott, um, Scott S. Cummings, I think um, Scott Cummings, the director said, um, oh, we saw Halloween and we were like, oh, we can do that. And then with, with that, Friday the 13th was the other big success. And then that confirmed that people what people want to see are these slasher films these boob filled murder filled um teen slasher well not really teen slashers that was more 20. um but then out of that there was a whole sleuth of them there's like the burning maniac um i could be here all day listing one, but... Of course, um,
0: you're right. Yeah. And of course, don't forget A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is one of yeah. Halloween's contemporary successors as well. Yeah. And probably one of the big names for 80s slashers too. Yeah. And much like The Thing, pretty much most of John Carpenter's films, when Halloween first came out, it received a negative response, but it got... A critical reevaluation give it five, four years later, and it's now labeled as a masterpiece, one of the best horror films of all time. It even got a positive review from the late and great film critic Roger Ebert, who, by the way, disliked the slasher genre, but Halloween was the first one he actually gave a positive review on.
1: Um, but it was also a big success for the franchise itself because when uh John Carpenter and Deborah Hill first envisioned um the Halloween movie and we see this in Halloween 3 season of the witch is they wanted it to be a anthology of these horror stories that happened at Halloween but it was the first one was such a success that they made a second one, and that's Halloween two, and that's why when they made Halloween three, trying to get back on this anthology track, they were all confused. Like, where's Michael Myers? Who are these? Um, who are these masked children with this shamrock? Yeah, that film is very,
0: very underappreciated.
1: Yeah, it, it, like, yeah, it's good. It has great jingle in it. Um, mm-hmm. But. It also shows what Halloween that is, shows what horror can be. It's because the other few big horror films at the time were um, The Exorcist or um, Rosemary's Baby, even the supernatural demonic film, demonic movies that featured this Demonic entity as the antagonist, where Halloween is more human. I would think whether Mike, whether Michael Myers is not is or not. It shows that you don't need this um, demonic entity to be this idea that evil exists. It's this monstrous entity that you can fight with prayer or you need a priest to save you it's the the killer is among you and psycho i um did it psycho was the first to do it but i would say halloween perfected it cuz psycho itself there might be some like i wouldn't say psycho as aged as well as halloween has cuz um if you watch it it's it's pretty slow at the beginning. You're focusing on... Yeah, and I she... Yeah. And then there is the one big shower scene with in Psycho. But other than that, it's... There's not really much scares to it. It doesn't... That part
0: is a bit debatable for sure. But yeah, because it's very unique. It's not also... It was early. It was 1962. They still had... where There was lots of experimenting on what horror can or could be as well. And Psycho is more unique in that approach. Not surprising, given this Alfred Hitchcock we're talking about. Because the first half was more like a standard detective noir. It only gets to slasher business right after the shower scene.
1: And then for the rest of the movie, it's uh, back to the detective one until the very end with the reveal that Mrs. Bates was dead all along but then it doesn't even end there like you could do it where it's you see his dead mother and just end the film there but you see him get you see you go back to the precinct and you see oh they drugged up two more cars in the swamp and they found bodies in them you could, and then they're like, oh yeah, he's gonna go away for a long, long time. He gets the, he needs to get the help he has, but with Halloween, it ends. The boogeyman is still out there. He is still out there. And that, um the idea of that keeps the audience fear as they leave the theater.
0: That's right, yeah, it leaves more to the imagination, which is what's the intent, yeah. Another thing that Halloween really changed was introducing the supernatural, nigh-invincible killer, because back then, with Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Black Christmas, the killers, they were evil people, but still people, just regular human beings who got hurt and who could actually die, but they didn't, but they were still mere mortals, but... With Halloween, it introduced us the unstoppable serial killer, which would go on with Jason Voorhees and, of course, Freddy Krueger.
1: And to an extent,
0: Chucky as well.
1: Yeah, well, and even uh, it pervases the genre uh, of horror. It's the Terminator, the Predator, um, the, and in even Westworld to an extent. I know... Like the original Westworld, they have this idea. Um, the Man in Black, I think he's referred to. It. He's sort of what Arnold bases performance off of RoboCops and other. That um, he's more of a hero in that case. But um, this, there's an inhumanity to invincibility that a lot of superhero uh, properties don't portray. Like. Superman might be invincible, um, but he doesn't really act any different to how Michael Myers would, or to the Terminator would. And that's... Because if you just see Superman like get up like Michael Myers and then just start walking like him, he, it would be terrifying because of the inhumanity of it. It doesn't matter... What they look like, as long as you get these elements and make them, make the audience know that there's something unnatural about their movement. It goes back to the uncanny valley. It's not just um, looks. It's it's a lot in connection with face, but it's also with actions. If you create something that's supposed to that looks like a human but doesn't act like a human would, it adds to the terror. That's true.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that notion as well. And on top of that, the very existence of Halloween inspired its very long line of sequels. The sequels are both a curse and a gift. A curse because they range up until now, of course. They range from meh to please kill me. (laughs) But... Without the sequels, Michael Myers wouldn't become the pop culture icon he is today, which was a point you made in our John Carpenter episode. Like, you don't become popular by just, as a character by just having one movie. Unless, of course, you are others like The Shining or Jaws.
1: Well, Jaws, there, there, there have been a bevy of sequels for Jaws, but... They don't count? Nope. <laughs> but... It's not just having one good movie that's not enough you need one good movie and you need you need to follow it up with to keep the character in the public consciousness even though it might not be you can keep making sequels that sequel after sequel after sequel and you get to a point where it becomes tiresome I think Friday the 13th might have gone too far with I would specifically say Jason in space Jason X I think it is um but you need to know you need to space it out properly where it doesn't seem tiresome that to a point where you're they know you're just doing this to make a quick buck because, oh, Halloween's still popular. Let's do a Halloween movie. It's where you need to put the right care and effort into each film where people know you, um, know that you're, uh, you want to keep this character, um, as the character, you, you want to keep this character for a different era. Um, and with that, um, yeah, but you also need to try something new with the character is what I'm trying to say. And a lot of, I know Halloween more so, I would say, does it than something like Friday the 13th where they try and add elements to the character. I think the big one is number four where, or two even, where they try to make it a familial connection to uh, Laurie, but also in the 4 they is the real one where they try to add a demonic force to Michael Myers' character. Which, it's hit or miss, it might work, but at least they tried something. It's not something like Friday the 13th where you can only kill campers so many amount of times.
0: Fucking- Find gimm- gimmicks as well yeah it can work for better or for worse but one thing that sets Michael apart from his other peers Jason and Freddy is that Freddie and Jason, they're still great villains, but notice how, which I'm sure all of us know, they've gotten more goofy and campy as the years went by, but Michael didn't go through any of that. He's remained evil and dead serious from the very end, and even more so now with the new sequels.
1: Yeah.
0: Like... Yeah, like the sequels really helped us know more about the character of Michael Myers, because Michael Myers, along with Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, are probably the big three. They're the three most iconic horror movie villains, and much like the theme, even if you haven't watched any of their movies, you know who these characters are. They're like, like not knowing who Godzilla or Kong or Santa Claus is. But I'm really glad that they brought the Halloween franchise back to its former glory. Who knows? Maybe Freddie and Jason could follow suit for sometime in the future.
1: I know um, for Jason, someone has been making short films. I think they're called Night Never Hike Alone. And they're really what make Friday the 13th good. These creative sort of camp based kills not camp as in like cheesy but camp as in like camping uh, based kills and i think they might have gotten the guy who worked on those to maybe work on a new fight of the 13th but yeah i'm not too sure
0: and then again freddie while well, it's it would be great to see another film personally i don't see another one happening given that robert england has Officially retired in the role as Freddy Krueger after Freddy versus Jason. Yeah. But of course, let's say one more thing too about Halloween and its impact. Like it, it started, the it popularized the genre, showed what horror is capable of, but above all else, it really taught an important lesson for me as a storyteller, which is. Less is more, because everything about Halloween is simple, but effective. The title, Halloween, is simple. The story, I'm sure anyone can follow and watch it blindly without looking too much into it. And the location is simple. It was even shot on a very low budget, like you mentioned, uh, $325,000. And even with all that, it's still considered one of the best One of the greatest horror films of all time. It's a classic in every sense of the word. And to quote everyone's favorite bastard killer doll, a true classic never goes out of style.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's all the time we have left for today's episode. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming in today. I've really been looking forward to doing this episode with you.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been an honor as always.
0: Dime. Yes, and this has really also been an honor to talk about my favorite horror film of all time. And it really it's not the first horror film I've watched, but this is the one that really kickstarted my love for the horror genre. It amazed, terrified, interested me, and yet I came back for more and more to come indeed. Until then, we'll see you next week, same time as always, here on Sin City, only on CMRU.ca and Feel Loud Images.